She keeps them always shining in a pretty cabinet. She says, just like Marie Antoinette, building a remedy for Chris Jobs and Kennedy. And it's a And welcome. You've stumbled onto episode 18 of Songs You Should Know, featuring the music of Queen. I'm Jimbo. And I'm the Mixter. And we're coming to you from the Songs You Should Know World Headquarters, located in a secret bunker in central Minnesota, and from our satellite office in Branson, Missouri. We can't tell you exactly where the World Headquarters is located in central Minnesota for security reasons, namely for the protection of our priceless vault of classic music. But we can tell you that you can see Lake Wobegon from here. Yes. Yes, and we're going to ride right into the first song. She keeps them always shined on in a pretty cabinet with a cake, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. So we got Killer Queen. Killer Queen. Which, uh, oddly enough, is the first big hit by Queen. (laughs) Hmm. You know, when you look back at uh, Freddie's sexual orientation and everything at a time when it wasn't necessarily public knowledge, the idea of even naming the band Queen (laughs) was was actually pretty bold. Um, So, and I remember very early on, I can't remember, we were somewhere with mom and dad and there was a radio playing and I heard Bohemian Rhapsody come on. And I was, you know, that was, maybe I was, let's see, that would have been 75. 75 or six, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 76, it became a big hit. So, you know, I was, I was 12, 13. And uh, I remember just being fascinated by that song. But I've gone back since then, and uh, Killer Queen, boy, um, has always fascinated me. And then trying to figure out what the lyrics are about and things, too. Right. Yeah. And, of course, the, so. the infamous bell. Bing! Bing! <laughs> Bring in the machine that goes bing! Boom, Monty Python. So this came out in, well, the album was Sheer Heart Attack, which came out late in 74. Um, and it was, what, their third album? Uh, yep. We had had Queen and Queen 2 before then, with, which when you go back, there were some pretty hard rocking numbers on there. Keep Yourself Alive is on there, on the very first one. Um, but uh, you've got all these elaborate four-part harmonies, um, and they were really insane about taking basically three of them, you know, Brian, Roger, and Freddie, and 
Right. You know, just layering and layering and layering tracks for that whole, uh, um, for that whole sound, that choir sound. And then um, Brian May was well known for actually orchestrating his solos. You know, a lot of guitar players sort of work something out uh, spontaneously or they get used to doing a certain lick and they do that. But uh, Brian May is a pretty sharp cookie and he would use music theory and he'd actually write out what what uh, should be played and then often do a guitar solo that was more than one track. And so you'll hear... Um, a note being played and then something else echoed on another guitar and a note being played that carries through another one echoed. And they call that the bell effect. So, so you got, I didn't know that. Yeah. You've got different instruments on different tracks or the same instrument on different tracks either way. And, um, together it builds up what the solo actually is or what the sound is. And the same thing, you can hear it on the Bohemian Rhapsody solo as well. It's everywhere. Yeah. It's a, it's a symphony of guitars. So tell me about uh, uh, Freddie's piano stuff. So besides using uh, his grand piano as usual, Mercury overdubbed the song with an upright credited as Django piano to give the track a vaudeville sound. And I, I went and re-listened to it, and it's definitely got that, you know, that 20s vaudeville <laughs> sound yep, to it. Yep. So. Um, and then at one point, there are two distinct bass guitar lines, one which diverges into a descending run. So, and that's what kind of gives it that, that thickness, I guess, or that, yeah, that feel of, um, and then, so on this, the musicians, uh, Freddie Mercury leading back in vocals, piano and the jangle piano that we, uh, just mentioned. And of course the beginning finger snaps are Freddie. Brian May's on electric guitar and backing vocals. Roger Taylor's on drums, the triangle, the chimes, and backing vocals. And John Deacon is on bass guitar, and uh, which I didn't know because I thought, we'll go into this later. Live, John Deacon does sing, but uh, in the recording studio, to his own admittance, he doesn't sing because he just doesn't think he's good enough. So he, he, by, he right. bypasses that process. I think uh, I think live it was it was for the visual effect of it, you know, to have him joining in on things. But uh, yeah, and probably to th thicken things up right. a little bit because it's Queen always had difficulty trying to take that huge choir sound and make it work live. in a live setting. Because how do you how do you reproduce that? And so, of course, many of the many of the songs, I mean, are very straightforward rockers anyway. And Freddie was such a theatrical front man that you could sort of, the audience will fill in the harmonies in their right. heads. You know, they, they, they don't need the, uh, the actual album sound to it. One day when we do a show about the Eagles though, I should say the Eagles really tried hard live to actually reproduce the album. Absolutely. Sound, which is a whole, whole nother way to, you know, to go at That's it. because uh, Don Henley is, very particular, we'll say. <laughs> but that's a good thing. <laughs> yes. And that, you know, so so note to self, we need to do an Eagles show. Yes, we should. Okay, so the song reaches number two in the UK and it becomes their first US hit. So this is their third album. Um, they hit number 12 on the Billboard charts in the US. So 
Tell me about <laughs> the lyrical meaning. What's this song about? According to Freddie, uh, it's about a high-class call girl. I'm trying to say that classy people can be whores as well. That's what the song's about, though I prefer people to put their own interpretation upon it, to read into it what they like. Uh, Mercury also commented that he wrote the lyrics before the melody in the music, whereas he would typically do the opposite. So on this one, he came up with the words first, and then they set it to music. Uh, the, song's first, the, the song's first verse quotes a phrase widely attributed, although falsely, to Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. Yes, and that was actually, um, boy, I'd have to look that up, who actually said let oh, yeah. them eat cake. You should have given me that for a trivia that's a question. Common... <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a translation of a French phrase, but um, it was actually, hmm, who actually said that? Let them eat cake. Let's dial up the internet. Uh, it is, <laughs> oh no, it's actually it's actually Jean Jacques Rousseau. So uh, in in his confessions, his autobiography, hmm. <laughs> Rousseau is a famous philosopher, and uh, it's interesting. And I was a former English teacher, so you were well versed in that. His his. <laughs> His, his autobiography. Now, Rousseau was also kind of uh, into himself. Um, the, first, the first six books of his autobiography were written in 1765. Cheapers. When, when Marie Antoinette was nine years of age and then published later in 1782. But anyway, he, he, he has um, the desire to have some bread to accompany some wine he had stolen. However, feeling he was too elegantly dressed to go into an ordinary bakery, <laughs> he recalled the. He says he recalls the words of a great princess. At length, I remembered the last resort of a great princess, who, when told that the peasants had no bread, replied, "Let them eat cake." Rousseau doesn't name the great princess, and he may have invented the antidote. Um, as his autobiography cannot be read as strictly factual. <laughs> so there, there was there was a diversion there. I'm sorry about That's all right. that, but uh, yes, into the whole Marie Antoinette thing. But yeah, um, Katy Perry said that this was a big influence on her. Killer Queen, the song itself. She said it made me discover music and helped me come into my own at the age of 15. The way Freddie Mercury delivered his lyrics just made me feel like a confident See? woman. Freddie inspiring I'm sure, women. I'm sure, Fre <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure Freddie would have. I'm sure he would have. I mean, <laughs> um, and then Brian May, who's a wonderful vocalist in his own right, uh, he said, "This is a perfect pop record and one of Freddie's greatest songs. It's beautifully constructed, and it's also got one of the solos I'm most proud of." So again, he he was pretty meticulous in, in crafting his solos and following musical theory yeah, ideas I mean, to put things together. That doesn't surprise me, but I guess of all their bodies of work, I mean, I, I I wouldn't think that he would say that's one of the solos I'm most proud of. I mean, I'm not knocking it. <laughs> I'm just saying that. Wow. I mean, well, 
You know, you know the story of the the guitar that he plays. The, the red he guitar. Uh, makes his own guitars, and the first one him and his father built is that right? Right. That's the uh, you know his his original guitar was built with his dad as a project, and since then, of course. You know, he's gone on to duplicate that because it's pretty tough to have a career with just one yeah, And guitar. I'm trying to think of who, I don't know if it was a private builder or actually who, I, I'm sure there's a Brian May line out there somewhere, but I, I don't know who mass produced them, if, if, if they were mass produced. But. Right, right. Um, and I think there is a Brian May model. There when is. I think I about some of the catalogs that I look through, but yeah, I don't uh, remember the manufacturer. The other, the other unique part of his sound, and here's a bit of trivia I'm going to throw in on the fly. I'm going to ask you a question: What does Brian May, what do Brian May and Billy Gibbons have in common as far as their technique of playing? Well, I can go out on a. Let me go out on a limb. Billy plays with a peso, so I'm going to guess that Brian plays with either a metal pick or a coin. He does. He plays with a pence, and Billy plays with a peso. So, yes, they both use metal coins. And I'm a big fan of metal picks myself because you're able to get lots of squealy harmonics, you know. I think you gave me one. I think I have a metal pick of yours that, believe it or not, it's got like a snake on it or something. (laughs) Well, it had a... a, Oh golly, right. yeah, it was like a stylized stylized S yes. on it. Yeah. Yep. So um so Brian May also said that uh every slice of that record is pure pop per- perfection. Little things that visit once and come again, <laughs> like the little bell in the second. That is probably <laughs> the, the little ting. That might be the most <laughs> popular bell in rock history. Ting. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is one of them. Uh, so he still was a little reticent about first releasing it, um, thinking that they're setting themselves down as something very light uh, because the band was initially very heavy and rock oriented. And that's what they were trying to be during this time. And Killer Queen was like, well, what is this exactly? This is this is all this. Um, this. uh Light harmony, although and yeah. and you know finger snaps and yeah. stuff. Freddie know. comes out finger snapping. Um, wow, <laughs> that's not a stretch for Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's a little bit of trivia that I wrote down there. You can go through that. So uh, the song was regularly performed between 1974 and 81 as part of a medley. In 74 and 75, the song was played following In Lap of the Gods. And in 75, 76, the song followed Bohemian Rhapsody. On the 84 and 85 uh, tour that was the Works tour, it was reintroduced in a medley following a truncated version of Somebody Somebody to Love. And then uh, live, the, the third verse and chorus of the song were, were, were never played, performed live. So. Right. And, and, and a lot of their stuff, they um, they would pull up bits and pieces and then go into another song and then come back to the next bit that you remembered about the first song. <laughs> brilliant. You know, they, they, were, they, were, they were brilliantly skipping over the things that were really hard to do right. live, but giving the, uh, giving the audience the experience of, of hearing the parts that they really right. loved. So. All right, we're going to be back in just yes, a minute. We will. She keeps a moe shondo in a pretty cabinet with a big 
Somebody to love. Somebody to love with a huge choir that we'll talk about. Right. Um, one of my, there's a long list of them, but one of my absolute favorite Queen songs, um, both because of just the, the the technique, but the meaning behind everything too, which I think, you know, man, we can all identify with that. Well, right. And, you know, like when it starts out, I mean, if that's not gospel, nothing is. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, and this, uh, you get that. Let's go to church. We're putting, you know, like the next song we're going to talk about is Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, which we've, we've talked about earlier in, in another episode in our 1975 songs. But right. um, so we'll try to throw in some variety there. But uh, so this this song actually came out after Bohemian Rhapsody. This is from 76's uh, A Day at the Races album. And Bohemian Rhapsody was on A Night at the Opera, which came out the year before. Um, and so Bohemian Rhapsody has the, the sound of what we call an English choir. Things are a little bit more uh, um, proper and formal if you actually go back and listen to it. Whereas Somebody to Love is very much a gospel thing. Yes. And we'll talk about that more in a second here. Right. But um um, so Freddie Mercury wrote it, but part of it was his fascination with Aretha Franklin that influenced him to try to do something with, uh, that more gospel sound of things, you know? So, um, so yeah, we've got complex harmonies, we've got guitar solos, and then we have the whole idea of Freddie Mercury and Brian May and Roger Taylor multi-tracking their voices to give you the impression of a hundred voice gospel choir. Mm-hmm. Well done. These guys. Well done, boys. These guys. <laughs> well done, lads. Well done, lads. Because <laughs> <laughs> these guys spent an enormous amount of time, you know, track after track. And you know that even not every take for a particular track, you know, a particular take on that track is good. So you're, you're oh, going yeah. over and over and over. Yeah. Little back in, bits here. Back in 1976. <laughs> You're dealing with tape. You know what I mean? And I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to see how that sounds now if it was recorded digitally from the onset. Because I, you know, you can tell me all this with plugins and all this other stuff, but I, I don't know if you get as thick as they did. And that's the drawback of. Boy, I, it's, oh, it's very, yeah, it's very difficult. But, uh, yeah. Um, so it's the same band. It is Freddie Mercury. <laughs> it's the same band. 
Freddie Mercury, uh, <laughs> lead and backing vocals and, and piano. Brian May on guitar and backing vocals. Roger Taylor on drums and backing vocals. And John Deacon's just there for the bass. So. Right. And John Deacon was there from almost the beginning. At the very beginning, there was a different yeah, bass player than the... Which I didn't realize. And and one thing I've, I've mentioned before is that since Freddie's death... Probably, maybe since the uh, the tribute concert to Freddie Mercury, um, anytime Queen has gone out, meaning the remaining players, you know, Brian and Roger, John has not gone on tour. He basically retired. So there's always been a different bass player. And then it's been Queen plus Paul Rogers or Queen plus Adam Lambert. Adam Lambert yeah. You know, um, you know. They've tended to to pair up with other people. The thing is, is that Roger and Brian are such strong singers themselves that you still get a very authentic, you know, Queen experience. You know, one of the first concerts I took my daughter to was Queen plus Paul Rogers. And yeah, and I thought that was uh, they've done very well. I thought that was a great pairing. I mean, it was, oh yeah, it really was. And yeah, and you, I mean, I'm a nice Paul Rogers fan too. So. I am too, and I didn't realize that they were such good friends with Paul Rogers. Me neither. I mean, because Paul Rogers brings out the bluesier, you know, rock side. Yeah, he's he got ob- that rough voice. Not rough voice, he, but yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't have the operatic side, but br- you, you realize how much uh, Brian and Roger really bring to that too. Correct. And then, then of course, they would do some interesting things with uh, pulling Freddie up on the big screen Right. Singing, singing parts of things, you know, and then, and then the band joining in with him right. and then taking over. You know, you know, and, it, so. and it was definitely a different take on it. And then I thought they, I mean, they've done well to evolve over the years with Adam Lambert. Not that he's a Freddie Mercury copycat singer, but it's definitely the more traditional when they do those arrangements. It's definitely more traditional with. It's the, it's the more theatrical take on it. There you go. Yeah. Right. So, which uh, Adam plays that part very well. He's <laughs> well known for that. Um, so yeah, the song it's, uh, it's right, right down his alley. So. Yep. The song reaches number two in the UK, number 13 in the US. That surprises me. I, I thought for sure it would be number one. Well, well, I think it stood the test of time better than a lot of other songs that probably ranked higher in the charts at the time. True. You know. You got to consider we're in the we're in the seventies. We're in the seventies here, okay? We're that's right. We're we're, we're we've got disco going. We got on. disco. We got the BGs ruling the world. We got all kinds of things. We've, and we've got punk starting up, you know, and and uh, so it was it was a wild time. So for Queen to be in that mix is, is pretty right. Well, on this one, the the lyrical meaning, the lyrics, especially combined with that gospel influence, create a song about faith desperation, and soul-searching. The singer questions both the lack of love experienced in his life and the role and existence of God. So, There you go. There you go. All right. Talk about the influence. So the song was played live on uh, the 20th of April in, in 92 during the Freddie Mercury tribute concert with George Michael on lead vocals, and I've seen that many times. It's great. Uh, since its release in 1976, the song has appeared on a number of television shows, such as American Idol. I believe that's where Adam probably sang that. 
Uh, I think he's saying that one on there. Uh, the X Factor, Glee, and Gossip Girl, as well as movies including Happy Feet, <laughs> Ella Enchanted, and additionally, it has been covered by many artists. Okay, have you ever seen the movie Ella Enchanted? I have not. Oh, it's, I mean, it's it's technically a, like a kid's story. It's a Cinderella story. Is it a story. Disney movie? Not Disney. I'm not sure who actually did it, but um, maybe it's Disney. I don't know. I have absolutely no Pixar. idea. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's a live action thing. Oh. And, and uh, one of the Money Python guys is sort of the narrator. Um, mm. Was it Eric Idle? I'm trying to remember who did that. But um, anyway, there is a version of Somebody to Love that that comes in there. And I I love that version of Somebody to Love. It's really cool, and it's really worked well into the story. But I'm going to have you guess who sang this. Okie dokie. All right. All right. know who that is do i know her <laughs> i mean when i know the name <laughs> not per, no not personally well, do, not you, do you rumors. recognize who that would be that's that that's actually anne hathaway um, really i was gonna guess really, Katie Perry yeah. just because she was a huge mm-hmm. fan but okay it's anne hath anne hathaway and she, i think she does a wonderful job with yeah. it it is actually her singing it mm-hmm. um the story if you ever want to go out and check out the movie is that um when she's born, she is given the gift of obedience. And meaning that basically if somebody tells her to do something, she has to do it. It's it's like having a yes date night with your significant other. Okay. (laughs) No matter what somebody says, if somebody, so anyway, what happens in this particular instance, people don't necessarily know that that is her gift or curse, but, um, Somebody commands her to sing, <laughs> and wow, and wham! She rips, she rips right into somebody to love. And, uh, I think wow. it's just. And for all you, uh, I for think all, it's for all you listeners and ladies out there, I was not gifted with that <laughs> gift of obedience. <laughs> the gift, the the gift of obedience. No, yeah. uh, <laughs> no. So you may want to check that one off your list. On that On note, that note little- we'll be right. Back. Let me go, Beelzebub, as a devil put aside for me. Oh, 
right. Well, on many uh, surveys over the years, this has been ranked as the top single of all time, especially in Britain, where it's basically revered as, you know, the holy grail of of pop music. So, um, and I always loved the idea. There are songs like this and there are songs that uh, O'Brien Wilson did with the Beach Boys, like Good Vibrations. Right. There are, there are things that Paul McCartney and the Beatles did, but where you have songs that are basically symphonies that segue into different feels and tempos and stuff going right. on. And, and uh, so like, somehow, somehow they put it all together. They got her. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny that you say the Beatles. I mean, to me, uh, a day in the life comes to mind. I just love that song. Yep. And it's, it yep. go, you go through different. And, and you feel somehow at the end that you've come back home, that you've, you've come back to the, the beginning of the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the second side of uh, Abbey Road is great for that too. That's an entire side of different songs that basically yeah. flow as one big symphony story. Yeah, yeah. So, right. which so your this first, song? Uh, which your ahead. first? Which your first recollection of Bohemian Rhapsody? Well, like I said, I was. We were at somebody's house with mom and dad. We were walking through. They had a garden out back and a, and a path through it. And there was a radio playing either from somebody next door or from inside their house. And I remember hearing Bohemian Rhapsody and the whole hmm. mama just killed a man and stuff. And then I, of course, recognized it more as I heard heard it on other, you know, radio stations. And uh, they used to, we had a a bus driver that, that always played, uh, um, the local rock radio station, which kept the kids happy during the whole bus ride to school and everything. And uh, I remember hearing uh, Fleetwood Mac for the first time that way on that bus. I remember hearing Queen on that bus. I remember hearing the Eagles, yeah. you know, Boston. Um, so I, I, I have a lot of memories that tie back to just riding the bus to school. I got to walk <laughs> to school during that time. So <laughs> I didn't hear well, once, I didn't hear anything, once you were in high school. But, well, and, uh, once I was in high school, I had to be well, let's, uh, uh, driven around, you know, or junior junior. junior well, let's see if this that's right, because you went to school in town in Omaha, in Bellevue. And see, I just went to Right. I just yeah. went a block on, yeah. on base. But let's see if this sparks any memories, because my first memory of Bohemian Rhapsody is roller skating to it in Omaha. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, yep. that would be the same time period. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of cool Absolutely. memories. Absolutely, I, I learned skating. how to skate backwards yeah. for slow songs, slow skates. So. Yep, yep. There was slow. There was you know, skating backwards and the slow skates when the lights or would come down. Couple skate, whatever. Yeah, yep. couple skate. Yeah, and then. Um, the pinball machines there. I was really into the pinball yes, machines. Yes, and I actually remember playing pinball to Bohemian Rhapsody as well. <laughs> the Dark Knight. Oh, 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 the Dark Knight. We didn't, we, we didn't have video game systems. We didn't have the internet. We had rock and roll, roller skating, and pinball. pinball. <laughs> I, think the, I think the Black Knight had like three levels. Love that game. Oh, yeah. 
So anyway, the the song appears. This is this song is actually from the album prior to the the song that we just did, um, "Somebody to Love." So this song is from a night at the opera, which came out in '75, and then I think it was pretty late '75. But um, um, so Freddie writes this. It's on the album "A Night at the Opera," and I think we related the story before. But Roy Thomas Baker, who produced. Uh, the song remembers that uh, Freddie Mercury sat down at the piano and he played the opening ballad section he played and then he stopped and said, and this is where the opera section comes in. (laughs) (laughs) And then we went out to eat dinner. (laughs) Done. (laughs) So I think the song, the song actually gestated over, you know, a period of a couple of years, you know, but, uh, and again, it's It's the the same same musicians. Yep. It does have an interesting um, genesis as far as how it became a hit, though. And you might want to read some of this, and then I can talk about some of it, too. But. So the, uh, the record executive su- suggested at 5 minutes and 57 seconds, the song was too long and would never be a hit. And other musicians commented uh, that the band had no hope of it ever being played on radio. According to producer uh, Roy Thomas Baker, he and the band bypassed the corporate decision by playing the song for Capital Radio DJ Kenny Everett. We had a reel-to-reel copy, but we told him he could only have it if he promised not to play it. I won't play it, he said, winking. So their plan worked. Uh, Everett teased his (laughs) listeners by playing only parts of the song. Audience demand intensified when Everett played played the full song on his show 14 times in two days. Hordes of fans attempted to buy the single the following Monday, only, only to be told by record stores that it had not yet been released. So. Right. And then the same weekend, so we've got a guy from RKO stations in the United States, Paul Drew. He heard the track on Everett's show in London. And Drew managed to get a copy of the tape and started to play it in the States, which basically forced the hand of Queen's U.S. label Electra. And in an interview with Sound on Sound, Baker reflects that it was a strange situation where radio on both sides of the Atlantic was breaking a record that the record companies said would never get airplay. And eventually the unedited single was released. So it it tops the UK singles chart for nine weeks, and it sold more than a million copies by the end of January in 1976. And it reached number one again in 1991 for another five weeks when the same version was re-released, becoming the UK's third best selling, <laughs> third best selling, third best, third best selling single of all time. See, if I yeah. was dedicated, I'd go back and edit no. that out. But no, uh, it's also the only song. Okay, so in in, um, in Britain, they keep track of what song is number one at Christmas time. So it's the only song to be the Christmas number one twice by the same artist. And it topped the charts in several other markets, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, the Netherlands. And, of course, has gone on to, to become one of the best-selling singles of all time. In the United States, the song originally peaked at number nine in 1976. Yeah. It still blows my mind that, you know, in its original release, there's still eight other songs that, that yeah, I'm not, I'm not are always that. above it. In the charts. 
Well, they were still in disco. It was, it was 1976, so who knows? And then it returns to the chart and it, it hits number two in 1992, following Freddie's death in 1991. And and it didn't hurt. That's right. <laughs> it did. It didn't hurt <laughs> that Mike Myers and it was what Dana Carvey. Yep. <laughs> yep. Wayne's World comes out, and of course, there's the famous scene of of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yep, that's my second uh, remembrance of Bohemian Rhapsody. Who hasn't been in the car and done that from Wayne's World? Done the, done the head banging thing. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, and Rolling, Brilliant. Rolling Stone, of course, stated that uh, you can't overstate the influence of Bohemian Rhapsody. It practically invented the music video seven years before MTV went on the air. Because, of course, they, you know, other bands had done promo videos along the way. I mean, one hit things, you know, that, that were done here and there. The Stones with uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash and, right. you know, other stuff. But uh, these guys got together and the, the entire video is just the four of their faces, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and and Brian Wilson, who is just a twisted genius, in that year, you know, in 76, he says it's the most competitive thing that's come along in ages. And it's a fulfillment and an answer to a teenage prayer of artistic music. There you go. And of course, what what happens in 2012? So in 2012, uh, Reader's Poll conducted by Rolling Stone magazine, Bohemian Rhapsody was voted the best vocal performance in rock history. There you go. And that's something. Yeah, and I agree with that. <laughs> but... <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, we'll probably split this one up. This, uh, so the lyrical meaning, meaning, according to Freddie, it's one of those songs which has a, a fantasy feel about it. I think people should just listen to it, think about it, and then make up their own minds to what it says to them. Bohemian Rhapsody didn't just come out of thin air. I did a bit of research, although it was tongue-in-cheek in mock opera. Why not? <laughs> right, and... Um... Freddie was known over the the course of his career for sometimes saying, I don't know, I just want people to read their own stuff into it, which I think a lot of artists do. I mean, people that write novels don't necessarily realize that this becomes a symbol for the greed of man. And the butterfly represents the desire for freedom. They weren't necessarily writing, thinking that in their minds. And so when they hear an audience talk back to them about what it means to them, it's as fascinating for the artist as it is for anybody else sure. because they're like, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to uncover that truth or, or communicate that truth, but I, it took the act of communicating it to make it real for me. I didn't know it at the time. And the whole idea, of, again, as an English teacher, the romantics versus the, the classicists is that the romantic is like the artist is somehow tied into another plane that the rest of us aren't. And they channel things that they may not realize themselves. Sure. And so Freddie was very much a romanticist in that way. And yet at the same time, the band releases a greatest hits cassette in Iran. So there's a leaflet in Persian included with the translation and explanations, and it refers to a book published in Iran called The March of the Black Queen. 
which included the whole biography of the band and complete lyrics with Persian translation. So in the explanation, Queen states that Bohemian Rhapsody is about a young man who has accidentally killed someone. And like Faust, <laughs> and I won't go through all of Faust with you, but basically the, the, the dude that sold his soul to the devil. He sold his soul to the devil. On the night before his execution, he calls for God, saying, Bismillah, in the name of God, in Arabic. And with the help of angels, regains his soul from Shaitan, the devil in Arabic. There you go. There, there you go. <laughs> all right. We said that the video was very influential. So seven years before MTV, it took them four hours, a mere four hours to record this video. They basically went in. It's all black, yep. you know, background and lights on their faces and some what were called what were cool video tricks at the time, you know, of moving the multi right, multi cameras, you know, multiple yeah yeah so it's like so it was cool for the time but they recorded that video in four hours <laughs> so and we we mentioned that in 72 it comes up in wayne's world yep uh so the song enjoyed renewed popularity in 92 due to its inclusion in the soundtrack of wayne's world bohemian rhapsody was re-released as a double a-side cassette single with the show must go on in january 92 to commemorate to commemorate the death of Freddie Mercury with proceeds going to the Magic Johnson Foundation for AIDS research. Following the release of the film and soundtrack album in February, Bohemian Rhapsody re-entered the Billboard Hot 100 chart after 16 years, reaching number two. <laughs> so the first time it reaches nine and it, it, it takes the partiers yes. watching Wayne's World to make it number two. <laughs> exactly and then okay so talk about covers and soundtracks but um weird al yankovic records a version that's actually pretty faithful to the original except for the fact yeah. fact that it's a polka so he records the bohemian is this polka real life is this just fantasy caught in a That dude is destined for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He better be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're talking a couple of generations of of music listeners that have been. There's always an Al Yankovic reference that you can make someplace. You yes. know, Yoda. Yeah, <laughs> Yoda. I mean, there's just <laughs> there there are so many things and. I think his whole personality of actually reaching out to artists and sort of asking permission, even though he, as a, as a parody, he doesn't need it as satire. Right. You don't, you don't need it. I mean, you have fair use, but right. he always wants to keep on people's good side, you know, 
and right. uh, and do things with their permission. So, yes. like a um, surgeon <laughs> operating for the very first time. <laughs> and and there are artists that are like they consider it. You know, if if Weird Al hasn't covered them, then they haven't quite made it. It's like you know, right? There's only a certain echelon of artists that gets covered by Weird Al. You know, you can, you've got to be something significant culturally. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. I mean, I think it's, anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's just <laughs> if if Weird Al covers so, you, you're probably okay. You made it, right? You know, who's going to take Weird Al's place when that's uh, right when he gets old and gray? But, and uh, so I. I mentioned earlier that, go ahead, well, what no, were you going to say? Talk about the Muppets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and in, in, in our 1975 oh. show, I can't remember yeah. what number it is. But if you go, if you go back to that show, I, we do have a sound bump of the Muppets doing a version of, uh, <laughs> of Bohemian Rhapsody. They had to, of course, slightly change the lyrics because they couldn't be singing about killing a man. Yeah. They're the Muppets. So, so I just love go back and listen to it or look it up on YouTube, Muppets Bohemian Rhapsody, and just enjoy a good laugh when uh, when Animal comes on <laughs> drumming, Mama, Mama, <laughs> and then it's just Mama, yeah, Mama. <laughs> anyway, look, it's it well up. worth yeah, it's well worth it. It's a difficult. It was. Yeah, it was it was always a difficult song for the band to do live, and like I mentioned earlier, they would do snippets of it and then segue into other songs, or they'd do it as part of a med- medley so that they could play the parts that people recognized, and or they used pre-recorded background vocals, other video clips, you know, things like that. But um, I don't think there was ever a time that they were able to really. Right? How could you ever duplicate? But I thought the it song, was, I mean, song line, you know, yes, you know, they were using so. pre-recorded tracks and, or clips, but I thought it was done tastefully. I mean, you know, how they would. Well, it was, it, sure. it, was, it was done out of necessity. I mean, it was, you know, if you want, you want, yeah. you want to give your fans the experience that, uh, that they're hoping to get out of that. You, you can't be queen and not do Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, that's right. It's just, it's just like uh, when Kiss is live, nobody ever plays the piano part on Beth. yes on that note we're going to be back in a little bit with some trivia Thank you, Zombie Daddies. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's time for it's time for trivia. The the part of the show where I get to totally pull something out of the air and uh, ask Mick questions that he has no preparation for whatsoever. None. 
And as a big brother working with a little brother, this is sometimes, you know, the highlight of, of my week. <laughs> that's, how, that's how interesting our lives are, people. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. Right. All right. So on April 20th in 1992, some of the greatest musical talents in the world gathered at London's famed Wembley Stadium to pay tribute to Freddie Mercury. Who died, who died of AIDS on the 24th of November in 1991. So the quiz, of course, the questions I'm going to ask are all about the tribute concert. Ooh. Now, do you remember watching that? I do. Okay. I do indeed. Yep. All right. So we're going to see how much of, uh, how much of your memory I can tweak with who sang what and who gave tribute in what way. Okay. And of course, I have multiple choice. If, if needed. If, yes, if needed. Yes. All right. So which singer sang I Wanted It All? At the Damn it. <laughs> I'm going to start you off right away with going, eh. Well, that's that was, that's multiple was years ago. Okay. Multiple choice. First choice is Robert Plant. Second choice is Roger Daltrey. Third choice is Joe Elliott. Fourth choice is James Hetfield. Hmm. I want it all. I'm going to say. I'll tell you that. One of those artists wasn't actually at that show. So Right. I think it's between Daltrey and Robert Plant. And I don't remember which one Robert Plant sang. Let's go with Robert Plant. I don't even think Robert Plant was there, was he? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think he was. It, it was Roger Daltrey. So you uh, had it. You had it narrowed down. So it was Roger Daltrey. Dang it! It was Roger Daltrey. All right. Who sang "I Want to Break Free"? And I have to admit that I don't recall this from the concert. So this was a tough one for me to pick up myself. All right. But, uh, uh, choices. Choices. Choices are Seal. Paul Young, George Michael, or Lisa Stansfield. And what's the name of the song? I want to be free. I want to break free. Man. Paul Young. It was actually Lisa Stansfield, and I don't... I, it was my second guess, but I still don't remember that. Yeah, I don't recall that. Now we're getting into some stuff that uh, you might remember. <clears throat> <laughs> All right. Um, with a guest appearance on guitar by Slash, who sang Tie Your Mother Down? That could be mm-hmm. Axel, Axel Rose. It could be Joe Elliott. It could be Elton John. Or it could be Robert Plant. Well, let's go with Axel. Axel's at the show, and he does sing some stuff, but not on this song. Dang it. What's your second choice? Joe Elliott, Elton John, or Robert Plant? Well, we know that Robert Plant wasn't there. (laughs) Joe Elliott. (laughs) It is Joe Elliott. So we've got the whole whole Def Leppard... um, you know, a uh, raunchy kind of voice, which fit tie your mother down yeah. very well. I'm going to play the beginning of this take of the song. You don't, Joe Elliott doesn't come out right away. 
Def Leppard is obvious. Def Leppard is very big and, and there, and Slash is out there. But we have mentioned before this person's talent. So you tell me who's who is singing during the portion that I play here. Okay. Who's singing? Let me ask you this. Is it a guest star? Uh, okay. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm saying that in this show, in this show, we have mentioned yes. this person's. Um, then I'm, yep. Yes. Brian May. That is Brian May. Man. Yeah. He's, yep. which I, which I think is, oh, he's a, he's an awesome vocalist. And if you ever watch Queen plus whoever they're out with, it doesn't matter. Brian May handles a lot of vocal chores and he's a, He's an A number one vocalist. He's 70 years he old a, now, but he's, he's I, freaking I awesome. Uh, speaking of, uh, <laughs> speaking of memory loss, speak, speaking of Guns N' Roses. So in 90, they were on the Use Your Illusion tour. So been 92 or 93. Uh, I think I saw him on the Use Your Illusion tour and it must have been 91 or 92. 92 probably? Yeah, I'm trying to think because... Maybe it was maybe maybe it was or early ninety three. I think it was ninety two. Yeah, because this may have been when they came back around because the the Fargo Dome didn't open up till December ninety two, and then we did Guns N' Roses in like ninety three, and the opening act was Brian May, the Brian May Band, and man, he uh, oh. blew me away. I'm like, yeah. wow, yep, and he, he, yeah, no, so Mel's, <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned that. Axel and Guns N' Roses. And I did see them on the Usual Illusion tour and it would have right. been the first pass through. So it was down at Target Center. And my, my biggest memory of that show was they're doing uh, Live and Let Die. And uh, Axel stops the song. Stop. Everybody stop. Just stop. Stop. And he points down at somebody up uh, trying to climb the security barricade in front of him. And it's a, it's a woman trying to climb over. And he says, you out of here. And all these security guys come around, lift her up over their heads, and march down the center aisle out of the target center. And he's like, and Axel's like, so long, bye-bye. And then he turns around, he looks at the band, everybody's looking at him, he goes, where were we? And they, they rip back into Live and Let Die. Oh, that was my memory of uh, seeing Guns N' Roses during that time period. But... Uh, <laughs> I did want to say before we moved on, though, that um, Brian May, if you ever get a chance, is a really interesting character. The guy has a PhD in astrophysics. (laughs) Okay, he's smart. He's worked with NASA. I have a book around here somewhere that Brian May wrote about the universe. Um, And I gave it to one of my kids, you know, a few years ago. And it's it's around here on a shelf someplace. And I didn't go and pull it out before uh, before the show. But um Yes, it's I think it is. I remember seeing it. Somewhere. But, 
<laughs> so, I mean, the guy literally is a rocket scientist. Okay, he's an ast- he has a PhD in astrophysics. So, all right, okay. now I'm going to take you back again to the to the early '90s. Which band did a Queen medley? Okay, they did a medley of Queen songs at the tribute right. concert. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the options. Okay, I it do. was Extreme. If you remember Extreme, Spinal Tap, Guns N' Roses, or Def Leppard? Def Leppard. It was Extreme, wow. actually, believe it or not. Apparently, I'm going to have to go back and watch this concert. <laughs> you know, I um, I have a videotape of it somewhere, but I don't even know that I have a VCR anymore to play it. So I, I'm sure we can pull it up yeah. on YouTube because you can anything. do anything on YouTube. But uh... All right. Who's saying we will rock you? I should know this. Give me the. Okay. Here's the choices. Paul Young, Paul Young, Elton John, Robert Plant, or Axl Rose. Axl. It was Axl. Yep. Yep. That uh, you can sing it. You can hear him doing the interjections and (laughs) everything in there. All right. So David Bowie. Bless his heart comes out and he does under pressure, which was a queen David Bowie, you know, um, cooperative effort. But who, who sings along with him? So it's either Lisa Stansfield, George Michael, Liza Minnelli, or Annie, Annie Lennox. Lennox. I think I did. It is Annie Lennox. They had a little feedback going on there and everything. What? But, uh, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> I sure miss David Bowie, man. <laughs> yep. Killer. World, the world is emptier without David it Bowie. Is. All right. Number seven. Number seven. Who sang Hammer to Fall? Choices. It's Gary, Gary Sharon, Roger Daltrey, James Hetfield, or Joe Elliott? Ooh. Hetfield. It was Gary Sharon. It was, huh? God dang. What's uh, yeah? And well, what's his biggest claim to fame? Wasn't he a, a, a sort of one of the one of the one of the fill-ins in Van Halen? He was. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was with Van Halen for like three years or yeah, something. I'm trying to think of the yeah. the name of the album that he. Yep. Oh, he was. Well, and and, and of course. Of course, um, he was at the Extreme. time. He was the vocalist for for right. Extreme, so it made sense. Extreme was there, so Gary yeah. Sharon sang him. No, he's no call. slouch. I mean, he's but um, he's the deal. Yeah, but he's 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 the Van Halen singer that you don't remember. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you've got you, you've got people in the, in the Dave camp, and you've got people. You know, in the Sammy camp, but yeah. I don't know how many people are in the Gary camp. <laughs> Not many. <laughs> and that's no, you know, that's no knock on Not him, on but him. it's like, okay, no. I don't think during that, I don't think during that time they really 
had any major hits or tours or anything. No, they had, I cannot think of the name of the album. And then they had a tour that may have been cut short because it was not doing so well. But my, uh, my memory of when they hired Gary Sharon was, uh, from the house of hair. D Snyder from twisted sister has his own radio show called house of hair. And so he was talking and he may have been playing the new record. And he said, you know, so they hired Gary Sharon and he, and he said, all I got to say is this, nobody flipping called me. Nobody called me. So <laughs> I think he was a little intimidated. All right. He didn't get we, we better before Gary Sharon. Anyhow. Yep. Yep. All right. We're going to, we're going to slide on out. Here. Right. We're gonna, we got three more, three more questions for you. So which singer, which singer is saying who wants to live forever? Elton John, Liza Minnelli, George Michael, or Seal? Man. Was it Elton? This is where Seal came in, actually. So he went, okay. he went I knew there. He and then who sang Radio Gaga? Which is, boy, at what, uh, at what concert? Oh, it was one of the Live Aid things, right? Where Queen, when Freddie was still alive, did Radio Gaga and the entire Wembley yep. Stadium is clapping in time with him god that that, yeah. that was just a classic classic show that, that's killer all right so at his tribute who sang radio gaga it was robert plant elton john paul young or roger daltrey mm. well no elton's in there somewhere but let's go with paul young it was actually paul young yeah hey and then finally, and I think you'll know this one because it was kind of a big deal because uh, there was supposedly a feud between these two. Who sang Bohemian Rhapsody along with Elton John? Hmm. Oh, uh, Axel. Axel did. So Elton plays the whole ballad part. And then when it rips into the, you know, the rock band, the, the the fat, the rock band part, everything. Axel comes flying out, and he sings that. So that was it. Was kind of a, a big yep. moment. But um, so yeah, that's a few highlights of the music of Queen. And uh, you know that you can always go to songsyoushouldknow.com. Songsyoushouldknow.com, <laughs> and you can you can email Mick <laughs> at at Mixter. And it can be M-I-C-K-S-T-E-R or M-I-X-T-E-R at songsyoushouldknow.com. Or you can email me at jimbo at songsyoushouldknow.com. And hey, this is it. This is episode 18. So 18. That, does that mean we're sort of a, an adult now or, you know? <laughs> That's we're, right. We're, Old enough to buy an assault rifle in some states, but not a handgun. That's right. I, I can't remember. I can't remember how that goes. Yeah. Um, yes, I said that. Yep. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's eighteen and eight. We're, we're eighteen and life to go, as uh, yep. Sebastian Bach would say. Yep. So, or we can go into well, Alice gonna... Cooper too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm eighteen. Yep. I don't know yep. what I'm, I'm half like. a boy and I'm half a man. <laughs> <laughs> I should have pulled all those song clips together just yes. in the medley here. But uh, you can also you can always do what we do. We talk about music, but obviously, while we have some knowledge, we're not encyclopedias. But there is Wikipedia, and there are things like songfacts.com. That's and, right. You know, just Google it. 
and uh, and check out some of these artists and some of these songs. That's what we do. Anywho, Anywho. that's what we do. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves, people. <laughs> All right. right. Until next time.